You know, it's amazing to me, as I've been doing research for my books the last couple of years, everybody thinks, well, everybody's going to be going to school online. They're going to be sitting in their pajamas, in their bedroom, watching videos, you know, on their mobile device or on a laptop computer or on a, on a tablet. And the fact of the matter, I think, is even in a virtual world, and even more so in a virtual world, physical environment is going to matter actually more. Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations on what we're learning about the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm Rebecca Charbowski, and I'm here today with Jeff Salingo. Jeff has written about higher education for two decades. He's the author of three books, including There's Life After College, a New York Times bestseller. He's a special advisor and professor of practice at Arizona State and a scholar at Georgia Tech's Center for 21st Century Universities. He also recently published a white paper on the future of the faculty office, where he explores why trends in education are forcing changes in how higher ed needs to think about space. Jeff, start by telling us what you're studying at the moment. So really what I'm looking at right now is the future of work and how it's going to impact education, right? Most of the clickbait headlines right now are about how robots are taking jobs, right? Artificial intelligence and automation, according to one Oxford study, might um, overtake 50% of American jobs over the next couple of, of decades. So what impact is that going to have for education? So uh, one of the things I'm looking at is how do we supplement technology rather than be replaced by it? You know, many of the skills we're teaching students in schools today could be replaced by technology. Technology. So we need to really start to focus on the softer skills, the human skills, the social skills that are able to complement technology. But the other thing that I'm looking at, and actually where I think the future of work might have a bigger impact on education, both K-12 and on higher ed, is this idea of the gig economy. Um, when we think of the gig economy, you know, we think of Uber and Airbnb and TaskRabbit. You know, we think of those tasks that have to be done. But increasingly, more people are working for themselves. Right? Google has more contractors than it has employees. And historically, education has been directed throughout life by employers, right? You would go and get your annual review and they would tell you, you know, here are the jobs that are open and here's what skills you're good at and here's what skills you need to work on. Here's where you should go and get your skills upgraded. We'll even pay for it. All of that was directed by somebody. And increasingly, if you're not working for an employer, somebody's gonna have to direct that learning for you and mostly it's gonna be yourself. So I think there's gonna be much more of a focus in the future on self-directed learning, on the ability to, to do that. And, and unfortunately, I don't think most of our K through 12 schools or colleges, universities do a very good job at that. So what do you tell parents about what kind of skills their kids should be learning? Well, so I think that kids need to have kind of a growth mindset, right? They're, they need to really be thinking of not necessarily hard skills, right? Of course, knowing two plus two is important, two times two is important, right? But what you really want to do are learn skills that can be applied anywhere in the economy, anywhere throughout life. What might those things be? How to work in teams and, and increasingly diverse teams is incredibly important because you're going to be working with people from many different backgrounds who have many different experiences, number one. Uh, number two, writing um, is going to still be a critical skill, writing and communication, both written communication and, and verbal and oral uh, uh, communication. The idea of problem solving and being able to take a complex problem statement and try to figure out a, a solution for it is going to be incredibly important in this future workplace. So it's, it's those social skills that I think are going to become more important in the future. So along those lines, I've heard you talk before about being able to tell your own story and how important that is. Can you explain that and give us an idea of how people start to figure out what their story is? 
So I think that most people, especially students coming out of college, they have a hard time describing to, uh, in interviews, particularly for jobs, what they've actually learned, right? They're very good at describing what they did, right? I had an internship at Steelcase, right? But what did you do on that internship? But more importantly, what did you learn on that internship? So students could say, I learned Excel, right? And, but that's not, they learned a program, right? But in learning that program, they actually had underlying knowledge that they were able to learn, right? They were able to uh, manipulate big data sets. They were able to see trends. They were able to do data analysis, right? And it's those skills that employers are most interested in, right? If all you could describe is what's on your resume, that's not gonna get you hired. You have to have that ability to tell an underlying story about what you've actually learned, not just what you did. And then you have to be able to anchor that in experiences that will show employers that you could work in teams, that you could problem solve, that you have the grit and the tenacity to keep going even in the, in the face of, of failure, uh, that you have some creativity, um, that you're willing to learn all the time, right? You talk about this idea of exploring and how important that is, but yet it's difficult within the higher education system sometimes. What's your advice there? How do people figure out their path? So I think part of the problem is that people, first of all, they pick careers that are familiar to them, right? They, they see teachers, they see doctors, they watch things on TV, and that's how they end up picking careers uh, coming out of high school. And then they pick a major that they think leads to that career. And then four years later, they start applying for jobs, and they realize it's like a foreign language to them, right? They didn't even realize all these job titles existed. And in many cases now, they're not really qualified for them because they didn't do the right things that led to those jobs. I think that we need to do more exploring earlier on. And that could include in high school, just getting a sense of the jobs that are out they're doing more job shadowing. I'm a big proponent of taking some time off between high school and college if you're not quite sure what you want to do. And again, exploring different careers, seeing what you want to do or in some cases what you don't want to do. Jeff, if you could pick one or two things that are most going right with higher education today and then the things that are most troubling with higher education, what would you say those are? So what I think higher education gets right is that they're increasing access to more and more students, right? We have more high school graduates going on to college immediately after graduating than we have ever had in any moment in American history. So this idea that some sort of education after high school is incredibly important is, is starting to enter, I think, the lexicon of, of most people, and most people understand that. One thing that's not going right, though, is somewhat related to that. Many students get into the system and they get lost, and they end up dropping out or they end up not graduating after being there for quite some time and they end up with a lot of debt as a result and again if you don't have that credential you're not going to have any currency in this job market right just because you have some college credit doesn't get you a job what's absolutely required is that degree some sort of credential and so we need to figure out a way that the four-year college degree is not the end-all be-all but that we have not only other pathways but other types of credentials that lead to jobs, right? We know already, for example, in the next 10 years, some of the biggest job growth is gonna be in what are called middle skills jobs. These are jobs that don't require a four-year degree, but they require more than a high school diploma. They require some sort of education after high school. And we need to start encouraging more students to get into those uh, types, of, uh, types of jobs because most of those jobs pay a very good middle-class salary. Um, and so that's gonna, that's gonna be absolutely required in this next decade or so. So I've been wanting to ask you, you have two young daughters, elementary school age, so do I. So what excites you about what you're seeing in their classrooms? What excites me is that 
and I, I hope this doesn't change, is that their classrooms are very flexible, right? So they don't follow a set curriculum every day. If the teacher wants to spend more time in one area on a particular day, they can. They have flexible seating, right? So my second year, uh, my daughter in second grade gets to decide every week how she wants to sit. Does she learn best standing up? Does she learn best on a yoga ball, right? Whatever, wherever she wants to sit and wherever she's most comfortable learning, she's allowed to do that. So she has a lot more choice in her education. But a lot of their education still, even as late as second grade, is still play-based. They have to negotiate with each other and share with each other and, and have some creativity. Uh, I tell this story often. A couple of years ago, when she was still in, in kindergarten, they uh, remodeled her school. They had a big renovation project. And they had all these cardboard boxes left over from the remodeling project. And they let her class loose in that room with these cardboard boxes for an afternoon. And she couldn't stop talking about what could be built with these cardboard boxes. They built a town. They built a railroad. They built a school. And they did it all with the teacher just watching them. These students decided what they were going to build, who was going to do what? It was all around teamwork. And if you think about that, if we put a bunch of college students in that same room, they would ask a lot of questions about process. You know, what's the assignment? Who do I have to work with? How am I going to get graded? So at some point, we flip that switch in education, where we move from this play-based learning which is how most of us learn on the job, right? The job is a mashup of activities with no scheduled end, right? We don't go to, we don't have class assignments on the job. Um, we flip that switch somewhere in education where these students then have to follow a syllabus, they have to follow directions all the time, and no workplace works like that. And so th what makes me so excited about how they're learning is that they're, they're getting prepared for, I think, not only the workplace of today, but the workplace of, of tomorrow, and I just hope that at some point it doesn't flip on them. What trends are you watching in the near term versus the far term for education? The trends that I see in the short term are, first of all, we're going to have much more effective use of data that allows us to personalize learning in ways that we haven't been able to before. I feel like the whole idea of the lecture in college is going away, this idea where you pull 30 students in a room or 50 students or 100 students in a room and you teach the same way to all of them is going away because of technology that allows now individual instructors to see the pace of learning by their students. So many of their students now are watching those lectures online. A professor can answer questions in advance, but they can also see what are the parts of the lecture that people have to watch over and over again because they're not getting that concept? So they have much more data on student learning, and they also have much more data on student pathways, right? So we know if a student fails a class in their sophomore year in a particular major, we know that many of those students are not going to make it by the time their senior year. So we can do, you know, we could involve ourselves and, uh, and, and move them into other majors or other classes or focus more on those classes than end up getting them out of those majors. So I think data, both in the classroom and big data as far as student performance, is going to personalize learning in ways that we haven't imagined even in the next couple of years. The longer-term trend to me is around lifelong education. And this idea that we're not just gonna to go to school once or twice in our life. When we think of school now around the world, we think of it as something that happens to young people and it happens early in their life. And the fact of the matter is that because of the changes in the workforce, but most of all because of the churn of knowledge, the need for new skills to keep up in almost any job will require you 
to go to school essentially for the rest of your life. But we're gonna see much shorter spurts of learning. It's how most of us learn now, right? The, the number one search term on, on YouTube is how to do something, right? And that's how we're gonna be learning in the future. We're gonna be learning in the moment constantly. And right now, you know, YouTube videos are done for that. But I can imagine colleges and universities and schools around the world creating content that allows us to learn in the moment so that we can keep up in life. Um, and schools are gonna allow you to come back, not only to take a full class, but just to sit in on one class, um, or sit on one lecture, or take a one online course for that might last just a couple of hours instead of many months. So we're gonna see this, this new way of learning that is essentially always on throughout our lifetime. So here at Steelcase, we spend a lot of time thinking about the physical environment. All these trends you're talking about, how do you see those impacting the places where people are going to learn in the future? You know, it's amazing to me, um, as I've been doing research for my books the last couple of years, everybody thinks, well, everybody's going to be going to school online. They're going to be sitting in their pajamas in their bedroom watching videos, you know, on their mobile device or on a laptop computer or on a tablet. And the fact of the matter, I think, is even in a virtual world, and even more so in a virtual world, physical environment is going to matter actually more. Wanting the, the ability to talk to people face-to-face, -face, the ability to learn once in a while in person is going to be a, a huge desire of people. You know, I teach at Georgia Tech, and they have an online master's degree in computer science for $7,000, and they have thousands of people around the world enrolled in it. Well, when a Georgia Tech professor or their alumni get together anywhere around the world, people enrolled in those courses show up because they want to, they want to be part of a community. Right? They want to be part of that community. So in that case, a built environment actually becomes more important. It may not look like a traditional classroom. In fact, I don't think it will. I don't think it will be lines of rows of desks and lines of chairs. And I think the whole idea of the big lecture halls on college campuses are going to disappear. They are going to disappear. But what I think we're going to see in their place are these physical spaces um, where people come together, even if they're not learning together all the time, but that they come together to, to work on problems together, to do some uh, teamwork exercises, or just to socialize in a way that they're not able to do online. You've mentioned the willingness to take risks for innovation, and we talk about that all the time because innovation leads to growth, and that's what companies are looking for today. But how do you teach kids that that's okay? You talked about that example of the cardboard box, which is great, but you're right. At some point, a switch flips, and all of a sudden, taking risks becomes scary, and we don't want to fail. How do we teach our kids it's okay to fail? I think we could model failure in schools where it's a low-risk failure, right? I mean, so when we think of failure, we think, well, we can encourage people to fail on tests, right? But there's activities that we can do that encourage people to fail. So a more iterative process of building things, for example. So think about a, a student who has to give a presentation in school. Most of the time, they're gonna work alone on that presentation. They're gonna show up to give the presentation on the day it's due. Uh, the teacher will give them feedback, usually on the content, not on the presentation itself, and then they'll go home, and that's it. Well, in the workplace, nothing really works like that, right? First of all, it's a team activity most of the time. You get feedback on it. It's an iterative process where you present it, you improve on it, you come back. And we don't allow for that in school. We don't allow for that iterative process. I see this when I teach writing to students. I, I teach a course at Arizona State University on writing. And, and people hand in their final paper. 
they wait for their grade to come back and then that's it. And then they stick it in their backpack and they're done. Right? Well, most writing doesn't happen like that. It's a lot of drafting. And so what I've done now is I show them early drafts of some of my columns, my books. I've asked my friends in journalism, give me your most awful draft you ever produced and then show me your final piece, right? The final article, the final book or whatever it was. And students, when they see this and they compare them, they can't believe that this led to that, right? They can't believe that awful draft led to this great final product. Because to them, they never see that. They just think, I'm writing for the final draft. And so I think that's what we need to model more of in education. We need to show them that this iterative process actually happens in life. And I think we need to model that failure. So I know you talk to CEOs and people who hire at organizations. What do you tell them about how to evaluate college graduates? So when I give advice to CEOs, I tell them, don't focus so much on the major. Focus on the experiences that students have had, right? Hands-on work experience matters a lot more to success in, in, in the job than anything else. And we're seeing this over and over again from some of the biggest companies in the world who have now looked at their most successful employees and they're able to reverse engineer their careers and figure out it actually doesn't matter where they went to school, doesn't matter what they majored in, doesn't matter their grades, GPAs, all these other things that we thought mattered. What matters are the actual experiences that they had. Did they do undergraduate research projects? Did they do other types of project-based learning? Did they have internships or co-ops or do service learning? Did they study abroad? All these experiences that took them outside of the classroom that we thought was so important actually matters a lot more to success on the job than what somebody majored in and, and how well they did in school. You have some great examples of employers using data to reverse engineer their best people's careers. Can you tell us more about those? So there's a number of companies. I mean, one of the fastest growing jobs now in, in human resources is in people analytics. And this idea where we, again, can use data on our current employees to figure out what really makes them survive, meaning they stay, and thrive, meaning that they do great work and they get promoted. And companies as diverse as Facebook and Credit Suisse, both of which I profile in the book, did this. And for example, at Facebook, they looked at what makes their most successful employees, and they figured out one thing matters above all else. Did somebody intern. And so they put a lot of more focus on their internships at Facebook than they did on their hiring from college campuses. At Credit Suisse, they figured out it didn't actually matter if you majored in math. They thought quantitative skills in a bank mattered more than anything else. Well, they actually found that a number of other factors, including music majors, for example, did much better than math majors. They found that leadership positions and not elected leadership positions, so actually that you were president of student government, they thought mattered, that actually didn't matter. Were you captain of your team or your uh, head of your club that you actually had to work hours and hours to get that position, that actually matters more to success on the job than they thought originally. Jeff, what are you seeing are the biggest shifts as a result of technology? Technology is both a blessing and a curse in higher education, right? The promise of technology, to be honest with you, over the last 30 years I've heard technology is going to save higher education. It's particularly going to save money. And what has happened is it's actually cost. To have the latest in technology at most colleges and universities actually end up costing them more money. Where I, though, now see, especially around two pieces of technology that I think actually can change the game in higher education. One is this idea of artificial intelligence. And if we could have 
artificial intelligence and technology replace people doing jobs right now in higher education, whether that's people grading or advisors. So now we can have potentially have virtual advisors or virtual graders that can save money. On the other end, data. So we now have, we have all this data on student performance. We know when a student has entered school, what they've done, where they've done it, what kind of grades they've had, and then we know their outcomes. So if we can now help track students in a better way, so we can not tell them what to do, but we can give them better information so that when they come in as a first-year student, we can say, people who came in like you, right, they had similar high school grades, they took similar classes, here's what they ended up doing, and here are the students who had success, and here are the students who didn't have success. So we're not telling students what to do, but we're giving them a lot more information that technology is enabled because of big data. I don't know about you, but I can't get my kids to clean up their room. How do you get kids to take ownership over their learning? Um, so I think that we allow kids to take ownership over their learning if they know what the outcomes are, right? So right now, you kind of go into school and you don't quite know what's at the other end of it. And so it's kind of a mystery to you. And I think that if we give students the options of seeing what are the outcomes of students like you? What did they do after they graduated? What are the types of jobs that are out there? Or what the, are the types of jobs that might be out there by the time you graduate? I think they're gonna take a lot more initiative and I think they'll, they'll see a purpose to education, right? Because when I talk to students who've dropped out of college, uh, particularly, there are a couple of reasons they drop out of college. One is money, right? They can't afford it. But more of it is they didn't quite know why they were there. Right? They were sitting in a classroom, they were learning something, and they didn't quite know how they would end up applying it in the workforce. And they weren't interested in a career or a major that they thought they were interested in a couple of years ago, and now they had nowhere else to go. And so a lot of it is about how do we apply learning in the real world. And the more project-based learning that we can do, the more internships and the co-ops that we can give students so that they can see, I learned something yesterday and I'm applying it today because that's what they want to know. They want to know, how do I apply this learning? And when they do that, they're going to self-direct a lot more of their learning in that way. Jeff, thanks for sharing your insights with us today. It's been great to be here. It's wonderful, and, uh, and thank you very much. You've been listening to Jeff Salingo, author, special advisor, and professor of practice at Arizona State, and visiting scholar at Georgia Tech's Center for 21st Century Universities. You can find Jeff's most recent white paper by going to steelcase.com and searching for the future of the faculty office. For more 360 real-time podcasts, subscribe to Apple Podcasts or Google Play and visit steelcase.com slash podcasts.